Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. We'll get started in just a couple minutes. All right, welcome to today's Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior, Journal of Ed Nutrition, Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Uh, this is the last in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB, uh, including the best article, best research brief and other finalists along with other high impact articles. As the official peer reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education and Behavior, JNEB serves and advances nutrition education and behavior-related research practice and policy. Before we begin, I'd like to review a few pieces of information. Uh, first of all, captions are available. You can access those uh, from the toolbar at the bottom of your screen if you're joining us live via Zoom. Uh, I will be putting the handout uh, with that goes with today's uh, webinar in the chat. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation. Throughout the presentation, please put any questions you may have into the Q&A uh, box or into the chat, and they will be moderated out uh, at the end. When the webinar ends today, you will receive a prompt to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete that survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members in the webinar section of the website. Finally, uh, watch for a follow-up email to be sent in the next few days that will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I can now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen. Thank you, Paul. 
Today, our speaker is Dr. England. Dr. Tessa England is a research associate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she primarily focuses on addressing health disparities and advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the context of clinical trial research. Dr. England also leads and collaborates on research aimed at understanding and supporting food system sustainability and nutrition security through policy and environmental interventions. Prior to joining UNC, she earned her PhD in Public Health Nutrition, Master of Public Health, and Bachelor of Science from nutri or in Nutrition from Virginia Tech. I want to thank her for being here today and sharing her paper. At this point, I can pass it over to Dr. England. Thank you, Dr. T. Filippo. Um, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you all today. Um, I'll be talking about our scoping review paper published in JNEB. Um, that outlines how branded marketing and media campaigns can support a healthy diet and food well-being for Americans, um, and specifically discusses evidence for 13 uh, U.S.-based campaigns. All right, I'll just uh, leave this competency slide up for a moment so you can take a second to review. Okay, and I wanted to be clear, I um, do not have any disclosures uh, relevant to this presentation or the paper, and neither do my co-authors uh, on the, that specific publication. I do want to also mention that this project was supported by uh, the USDA, um, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, um, as well as the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, the RWJF funding was actually part of a larger grant um, to evaluate the FNV campaign, just for a little bit of context. Um, and so this whole evaluation, most of it was related specifically to the FNV campaign, but we wanted to do this review paper to look at, you know, what evidence was there out there for existing campaigns that applied kind of this more traditional marketing um, approach to the promotion of healthy uh, dietary components. So I like to say FMV was trying to be the got milk of fruits and veggies. Um, I just want to give a little context. We'll review FMV was one of the campaigns we included um, in the actual evidence summary. So we'll talk a little bit more about it, but I just want to give a little bit of context to this project. All right, so um, we all know that unfortunately, uh, Americans' dietary quality is generally suboptimal. Um, we can see here in this chart, this is um, Americans' uh, intake um, relative to the dietary guidelines for Americans' recommendations. So if they're below or above the limit, it's an orange. Um, and blue is uh, above. So unfortunately, Americans uh, generally don't eat enough fruits and veggies, whole grains, um, dairy, and um, often they have excessive amounts of refined grains, added sugars, saturated fat, and uh, just broadly processed and red meats in their diets. Um, so we have a variety of tools to promote healthy eating, and these range from the individual level all the way out to the macro level 
um, environments where we can um, try to make positive choices easier, more attractive, and uh, you know, normalize these healthy choices. Uh, and so this paper generally focuses on the uh, marketing and media space, um, which unfortunately, um, just broadly in the U.S., uh, rarely supports um, healthy eating. Um, the vast majority of marketing communications are predominantly for energy-dense and nutrient-poor um, products that are highly processed. Um, we can see in this figure here that at least um, when looking at marketing aimed at U.S. Uh, children and teens, uh, less than 1% is for fruits and vegetables. And then the vast majority is for fast food, uh, sugary drinks, cereals, and other sweets and snacks. So these are not products uh, that we would generally consider um, in alignment with the dietary guidelines for Americans' recommendations. Um, and so we wanted to take a look at um, how these marketing and media strategies could be used to promote consumption of healthy foods and beverage products that are more in alignment with um, the dietary guidelines, um, rather than focusing at least on, you know, the blaming and shaming um, of the role that food industry generally plays in our unhealthy food environments. Um, so one uh, kind of like fundamental model we used in this project is the food well-being model. So uh, Block et al. Um, proposed repositioning diet-related research and recommendations from, you know, this focus on the specific nutrients and health aspects of foods, uh, more to how consumer, you know, foods contribute to consumer well-being broadly. So this uh, focus is away from specific individual nutrients, you know, reducing sodium, you know, reducing added sugars, more towards um, broad patterns of eating um, and specific foods and food groups. Um, and they also proposed um, using kind of more positive approaches away from those individual nutrients, um, more positive approaches aimed at increasing consumption of healthy foods and kind of um, shifting away from consumption of unhealthy foods. So and all of this with the recognition that taking a more positive um, approach would be helpful in this context. Um, another framework that we used is uh, the health branding framework, uh, which specifies how marketing principles can be used to influence positive health-related behaviors. Um, it's in uh, good alignment with the food well-being model um, in its recommendations to promote consumption of healthy food rather than unhealthy food or discouraging consumption of unhealthy products. Um, and it encompasses kind of three overarching domains, so brand development, marketing execution, and evaluation and outcome reporting. So within each of these domains include you know, a list of different specific strategies that marketers can use to appeal to consumers' food-related goals. Um, and so this was a framework that really guided our research. 
Um, and this is how we uh, synthesized and um, assembled the evidence. So the purpose of this study was to identify and summarize the available evidence for U.S. national diet-related branded media marketing campaigns that promoted components of a healthy diet between 1990 and 2016. And so we used that health branding framework um, to kind of map out the strategies that were used by these specific campaigns. Um, so I will just mention um, that this project was, yeah, started in at the end of 2016. Um, it is a little out of date now, um, but I'm excited that maybe in the at the end, if there's any questions or comments, um, I would imagine there's a few at least new campaigns that we hadn't identified that might be, you know, eligible, would have been eligible for this. Um, had they been ran, so I'm excited to maybe discuss those. Um, so for this project, we used a three-step mixed methods research approach that first started off with a scoping review, so this is a broad review, um, to identify national branded diet-related campaigns. Um, we then followed up by a comprehensive uh, desk review to get more, as much information as we could about those identified campaigns. And then we also did uh, key informant interviews with uh, stakeholders who are knowledgeable or involved with the identified campaigns. So just a little bit more in depth, um, the scoping review looked at uh, peer-reviewed literature, gray literature, and news media sources um, to identify uh, eligible campaigns. Uh, we were looking at campaigns focused on encouraging consumption of like individual foods or beverages or general groups recommended as components of a healthy diet. Uh, but we were not interested in campaigns that were focused on individual nutrients or promoted um, those promoting a specific or general dietary pattern. So we were trying to align our search with the food well-being model um, looking at campaigns focused on specific foods. Um, so we ultimately identified 13 uh, campaigns in that initial scoping review, and then we did an in-depth um, search of the available evidence for these 13 campaigns. Um, so we searched eight electronic databases for peer-reviewed literature on these sources as well as uh, the gray literature and news media sources. Um, and gray literature can be really important uh, as a source for, or source of information to supplement the peer reviewed literature. Um, a lot of these campaigns did not have any evidence reported in the peer reviewed literature. Uh, so gray literature became really important and gray literature can be really anything published outside of like traditional commercial publishing. So this could be white papers, uh, press releases, just general like website, um, you know, documents and summaries available on a company's website. Um, and for inclusion in this, uh, these sources needed to be publicly available um, and not uh, paywalled. Um, and then we had interviews with 11 key informants. 
Um, these interview interviewees were identified through a purposive and uh, snowball sampling procedure where we asked participants to refer additional uh, informants as we went through. Um, and so we interviewed these informants um, using a semi-structured interview guide that was uh, developed according to the some of the topics in the health branding framework. Um, and then we transcribed and coded uh, the interviews in in vivo 11 for thematic analysis. So ultimately we took evidence from the scoping review, this comprehensive you know, desk review, and then the key informant interviews and synthesized it all together and triangulated you know, ev evidence from different sources um, into a broader summary. Um, so we summarized the available evidence for each campaign, and then we also categorized uh, their use of health branding strategies across these three domains of brand development, marketing execution, and then monitoring and evaluation. Right, and for the results, um, this is a figure in the publication if you want uh, to have a larger reference. But we identified uh, 13 campaigns through the review. Um, so it started with five a day uh, for better health uh, to promote fruits and veggies, um, followed by the Got Milk campaign and the 1% or less campaigns. Um, then the Meatless Monday, uh, which is uh, run by the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. Um, and then in 2006, um, there was the first uh, rebranded campaign. So this was the uh, Fruits and Veggies More Matters campaign, which was rebranded from the initial five-a-day campaign. Um, and then we had a few more uh, campaigns focused on whole grains, uh, promoting peanut uh, intake, um, and then the uh, Eat Em Like Junk Food Baby Carrots campaign. I'll be interested to hear if anyone had heard of that one uh, prior to this. Same goes for the Cans Get You Cooking campaign, which encouraged uh, sales and intake of canned fruits and vegetables. And then we have the Partnership for a Healthier America's Drink Up campaign, which encouraged uh, water uh, consumption. Um, and then uh, the rebranded uh, Perfectly Powerful Peanut campaign, uh, followed by the Milk Life campaign, which was rebranded from the original Got Milk uh, campaign that we all, I'm sure, are somewhat familiar with. And then finally, um, the FNB campaign, which this figure is a bit... Um, or this is now dated, um, it says 2015 to present. I actually looked to see if I could find any information I could update for the FMV campaign. I was a little bit sad. <laughs> um, I could not find any really recent updates on what they're doing with the campaign. A lot of the social media posts were, like the last ones were from at least a year ago. So it kind of seems to have fizzled out, unfortunately. Um, but, um, yeah, just in summary, um, there were 13 different campaigns. Most of them 
promoted fruits or vegetables. Um, and there were three campaigns that promoted milk, fluid milk intake, um, and then one each for whole grains, nuts, legumes, water, and a reduced meat consumption. Um, I also wanted to specify that we had uh, interviewed key informants uh, who were knowledgeable or involved with all of these campaigns, except for the Eat em Like Junk Food and Milk Life campaigns. Um, the Eat em Like Junk Food campaign, there was very little information available for that one, and we could not get in touch with any informants. And then the Milk Life campaign was very interesting. Uh, that rebrand happened and we also could not get in touch with any staff who had been involved in that uh, new edition of the campaign. Uh, but here is the table uh, reported in the manuscript um, looking at health branding strategies across the different campaigns. So we can see in the top row, uh, the names of each of the campaigns. Um, and in the columns, we're looking at use of these health branding strategies specific to brand development. Um, so what strategies did these campaigns use to develop their brand? Um, so we saw about half um, so it was seven campaigns used a theory or conceptual framework. Um, explicitly to help develop their uh, brand or general campaign strategies. Um, almost all of the campaigns uh, reported conducting some sort of formative research to guide brand development and inform, you know, audience segmentation, um, messaging strategies to really develop uh, their targeted strategies. Um, all of them had logos or graphical identifiers. That's not very surprising. Um, and then um, the use of celebrity endorsement and brand mascot or media characters was a lot more mixed um, and a lot less common, especially for the uh, brand mascot or media characters. And I'll also say, um, just generally, uh, there were there was quite a bit of co-branding. So this is when two, you know, uh, generally unrelated brands partner together to promote a, you know, either related products or a new product that combines both of their interests. Uh, most of the campaigns reported doing this, and that was pretty interesting. Um, to see, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you can look in these supplements, there's uh, hundreds of uh, sources for these, and any co-branding initiatives seem to, they got a lot of media attention, so it was very popular, good way to get the brand out there. Um, when we're looking at specific marketing execution strategies, um, according to the health branding framework, um, we saw a lot of use of paid mass media. So this could be like television advertisements, um, radio, billboards. Um, there's also unpaid mass media. Um, so this would be something that um, 
you know, the campaigns actually owned. Um, so it could be, you know, press releases from the owners of the campaign, something that they don't have to pay for, but that could be picked up nationally. Um, there was a decent amount of use of social media. And I wanted to highlight that all of the campaigns uh, received earned media attention, which can be really important for those on a limited budget. So earned media is uh, media attention or coverage that comes from sources external to the campaign. So if I am working for Got Milk and we, you know, release a press release about the campaign, and then somebody from the local news station picks that up and covers it, that would uh, be an example of earned media coverage. And there were actually a lot of um, news articles that would um, be considered earned media, like actually way more than was included in the list of uh, citations for those sources, because so many of them were essentially the same articles that were just being distributed to local, um, through local news outlets. So we didn't want to repeat those over and over again in our source list, but it was really cool to see how far um, some of this media attention stretched. Um, and then I'll also say, um, nearly all of the campaigns reported doing some sort of audience segmentation and message tailoring. So the audience segmentation might be, you know, we're encouraging specifically young mothers um, to incorporate more fruits and veggies in their uh, diet and their kids' diets. Um, so that would be the segmentation is choosing a specific group to focus on. And then the message tailoring would be like tailoring uh, your promotional messaging specifically to the needs of that target audience. So, you know, those messages might have talked about the time you could save um, using certain, you know, canned fruits or veggies, um, just specific to the needs of whoever that target audience happens to be. All right, and then um, here we're looking at the evaluation and outcome reporting uh, health branding strategies. I also want to be clear here, I should have mentioned this at the start. Um, none of this is um, definitive. Like I can't, none of us can say for sure whether or not uh, these campaigns used these strategies or not, but this, I mean, the whole table, all this evidence we've reviewed is just where we could identify um, a source of information confirming uh, use of a strategy. So just because like one of these bubbles is white, like unfilled, doesn't necessarily mean they did not ever use uh, these health branding, health branding strategies. Um, it just means that we couldn't find any evidence for their use, which also really ties back to this evaluation and outcome reporting domain. Um, uh, there were a few different outcomes we were interested in, so awareness, impressions, behavioral determinants, consumption, and sales. 
Um, and unfortunately, there wasn't a ton uh, out there reported for evaluation outcomes for a lot of the campaign, a lot of the campaigns. Um, many of the campaigns kind of stuck to this, you know, the upper end of, uh, you know, awareness, impressions from the brand and behavioral determinants. So that might be like intentions to buy or consume a product. Um, the actual measurement of consumption and sales that um, was a bit more spotty, and it, honestly, it was not as robust as some of the other outcomes. So we would we were able to find passages that would say they were tracking sales, uh, but unfortunately, for a lot of the campaigns, we couldn't find you know any statistical analyses or robust evaluations that looked at whether or not these campaigns actually made a difference on consumer behaviors and actual consumption patterns. All right, so um, just to go through a little bit of discussion, um, these 13 marketing media campaigns used a variety of health branding strategies across the three domains. Uh, most of them conduct, reported conducting formative research um, to guide brand development, uh, but the use of theory or conceptual frameworks was a bit more mixed um, and often not clearly tied like throughout the uh, brand's development into implementation and evaluation. That was another uh, discrepancy we saw was that like a lot of campaigns would be developed using a framework, but then that framework disappeared when it came time to evaluate it, which is something you want to generally do is, you know, whatever framework you're using to develop a campaign, you should be also incorporating it into the evaluation design. All right, so uh, also in summary, um, all the campaigns utilized a low cost um, unpaid and earned media, um, but uh, you know, paid mass media and audience segmentation was uh, a little less common, um, but still used by most of the campaigns. And this was despite the like very wide variety in funding amounts. So you can imagine the Got Milk campaign had uh, millions of dollars of funding for the years that it ran. Um, they paid for a mass media as well as um, like the 1% or less camp campaign, which also promoted fluid milk consumption and had uh, just a fraction of that budget. Um, so the rigor and reporting of these campaign evaluations varied, but most of them at least had some measure of reach, um, kind of like behavioral determinant outcomes and one or more uh, measures of behavior change in terms of consumption or sales. Um, but unfortunately this um, research was, or the evaluation, um, and outcome reporting um, was just not robust enough. There's a huge lack of published literature to support the long-term impact of these campaigns on consumer behavior. Um, 
and limited information that was like publicly reported, especially for high quality evaluations. Um, and again, I just want to say that the campaign characteristics and the use of health branding strategies might be incomplete. We tried to gather all that we could, but we still might have missed um, some sources. And then we didn't have key informants for two of the campaigns. Um, I just want to briefly go through and just talk about <laughs> quickly that um, these campaigns were... Uh, run by you know a few different sectors so there were industry sponsored uh, campaigns and then those run by non-governmental organizations often nonprofits, and several of the campaigns received government funding so these three sectors have uh, a common goal of increasing intake of the healthy products that they were intending to um, change consumption around um, and so we, we wanted to highlight that this is an opportunity moving forward to have more cross-sector uh, collaborations. You know, industry should have expertise that might differ from government or NGOs, um, and they could be a great partner in implementing these larger scale campaigns. Um, of course, both government and NGOs have um, goals to maximize the impact of their campaigns and improve public health. Um, I do want to specifically point out that the government also has, you know, an interest in reducing, you know, negative healthcare outcomes associated with poor diets. So there's like potential savings very long term uh, for the government. Um, and they also have a lot of potential agency and influence over these campaigns. You know, if a campaign is receiving public funding, maybe that's something that could be required, you know, that these uh, campaigns should be rigorously evaluated and that we should have these findings reported in the public domain if they're going to be publicly funded in any part. Um, so just some future research and practice recommendations. Um, for brand development, um, it's always good to incorporate theory into your planning and uh, execution of an initiative. Um, we really want to see greater reporting of that use too, specifically how theory or conceptual frameworks are used and any deviations from those um, frameworks. Uh, campaign should conduct and report uh, more rigorous formative evaluations. So um, any market testing, like audience segmentation and initial testing that they've done to develop their messaging um, and general branding. For marketing execution, uh, it seemed from the evidence we reviewed, that paid mass media can be cost effective and that unpaid and earned media are low cost options that campaigns can use to broaden their reach. Um, and then the evaluation outcome reporting, I think I've already touched on it quite a bit. We really need more rigorous formative process and outcome evaluations. Um, we really want to learn more about what is actually resonating the most with different segments of the consumer market. Um, 
And we need to be evaluating these campaigns, like the effectiveness in influencing individual behaviors. Um, and this could be in line with, you know, different sector goals to improve profits or sales or to just improve general behavior and, you know, healthy food intake. So looking at the individual level outcomes, but also in the context of these being broader public health initiatives, we, it, we really need to have a better evidence base of the, you know, ROI, the return on investments that these campaigns can potentially bring. Um, and then we really need more public reporting uh, to inform and establish an evidence base uh, for these effective strategies uh, that we can use to improve diet-related behaviors and hopefully improve public health. Um, and I just want to uh, provide the link. This will be in the uh, slides that you all received um, to the full publication. Um, and I put my contact up here. I'm happy to answer any questions now. Um, and if you have any after this uh, session, please feel free to reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much. As people have questions, please feel free to put those in the Q&A box or in the chat box, and then I'll moderate those out. Um, so one question I had, can you speak a little bit more about the process of reviewing gray literature, what that looked like? So if someone else wanted to do something like that, they could learn about or know more about the process. Yeah, so um, I believe that was the LexisNexis search of the big component of that, that searches a lot of different databases. And then also just Google searching at these like keywords um, for the campaigns. But we, I like turn into a full like information hoarder after this project. Like we had tables and folders of all kinds of sources, but we tried to kind of prioritize by quality. So any, you know, white paper written by that campaign sponsor would be prioritized for about it. Um, if it was kind of like a third party source of information, we might not, you know, it didn't include anything useful, we might have excluded that, but there was still a lot of interesting information available. And um, another source of gray literature I forgot to mention would be uh, dissertations and thesis. Uh, publications as well as um, conference proceedings. So that was um, an interesting source as well to include. Yeah, for sure. Gives you a deeper um, depth of more of a depth of information. Absolutely. Um, can you discuss what elements of some of these campaigns were most successful in terms of successful branding? Yeah, so... I guess it depends on how we want to define success. Like, I just think about the Got Milk campaign as, like, the, like, pinnacle of, like, a really successful campaign at generating brand awareness. Like, I feel like every, almost, most Americans probably know or have seen the Got Milk campaign, at least those who were around when it was running. Um, but it actually didn't increase sales of fluid milk. Um, the evidence 
has suggested it, you know, blue milk sales were declining. So um, the analyses suggested the got milk campaign like lessened that trend, but it didn't turn things around. Um, despite being so, you know, ubiquitous, at least it seemed. Um, in terms of influencing actual consumption outcomes, um, I think the 1% or less campaign had the most like peer-reviewed literature out there because they partnered with academic organizations and actually conducted several studies uh, like that had rigorous designs. And so they were able to show through those uh, studies that there was um, an increase in fluid milk consumption. Um, but that's the bigger issue with most of these campaigns is that they didn't have rigorous um, evaluation designs. And you know there wasn't a lot of partnership with academia to do these evaluations and then report them in you know, the published peer reviewed literature. So we're really missing a lot of um, important evidence. And the same, unfortunately, is true for the FNV campaign. Um, I wish, I mean, we published a few more studies on it, but it seems like it's just, I don't know if anybody, and actually, yeah, if anybody knows any updates on it, I would love to hear. But from everything I could see, it's just another one that is kind of phased out, um, unfortunately. Thank you. How do you think your research relates now with the advent and progress of social media? Yeah, that was an interesting thing to look at. Um, let's see if I can go back in the context of marketing execution. So I think, yeah, all three of the campaigns that didn't use social media um kind of ran when it wasn't really a thing. These were all earlier campaigns. So the five a day campaign was rebranded to Fruits and Veggies More Matters, which did use social media. Um, the Just Ask for Whole Grains was an earlier campaign in the 2000s as well. And same for the 1% or less, like that was an earlier intervention. Um, so it, I guess it's not surprising that all of the more recent campaigns did use social media tactics. Um, one thing that's like really interesting is like social media, I don't know, you that's a great study opportunity to look at the actual like metrics on your interventions reach and engagement. Um, so hopefully future campaigns like in the public health space will actually uh, do a better job at documenting those and maybe tying it to actual behavior change after, you know, post social media engagement. Um, you mentioned maybe discussing some of the more recent research. Uh, did you have any specific ones in mind or? Um, about the FMV campaign or? Sure. Um, I was just thinking, I mean, we've ended up with four publications, if we're counting this one, there are four publications total. So we did stakeholder interviews specific to the FMV campaign, um, as well as kind of like an examination of the marketing communication strategies and just general outcomes. And I'll say it kind of, I don't think anything really changed um, from this chart for the FMV campaign specifically, because we did assess awareness, 
um, behavioral determinants and self-reported intake as part of that. Um, and there wasn't anything uh, life-changing about the result. It wasn't that exciting, unfortunately, for the FME campaign. I will say, so I had been so excited when I first got to start on this project because we were going to get to use Nielsen sales data for the fruit and vegetable products um, in the specific stores where the FMV campaign was being implemented. And then it just, you know, I wasn't privy to all of the terms and conditions. Um, and I was, you know, a new graduate student joining this project, but it just, when the time came to share the data, it, I don't know who decided it, but it was no longer available. And it was just like a big bummer. Um, I thought it would have been really cool to look at the actual hardcore like sales outcomes in these specific stores where the FMV campaign was running. Um, so that's just another thing to consider is like data sharing agreements. Uh, for these campaigns, especially ones like the FMV campaign, which were receiving some public funding. Yeah. So aside from social media analytics, do you have any suggestions on how to further evaluate uh, to gauge behavior, behavior change? We use social media a lot, this person says, and it's great um, that you get the analytic tools, but we're lacking in proving that it's directly tied to supporting behavior change. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, one of the recommendations I uh, that we made was to uh, evaluate campaigns um, in specific kind of like food related contexts. So schools are a great one. If you can partner with a school, I mean, you're getting the same like population in there day after day. And if you've got your Got Milk poster up or your FMV campaign posters, like you can really hopefully tie exposure to that, to behavior change. And in this context too, I wonder if that's something you could, you know, get an agreement for to use like individual students or you know in the context of a workplace cafeteria individual employees like if they would consent to sharing their social media um information so that you could track their individual exposures and then also be looking at their you know dietary purchase behaviors i guess we wouldn't be looking at a specific intake but yeah, this is a very difficult question. Like retail sales are also really interesting, but yeah, being able to tie, especially social media, individual um, exposures from that to behavior change is difficult. And, you know, we're looking at a lot of different foods. It's not as easy when it's like, oh, I'm promoting a purse or something that you're also going to be ordering online. I think that's another issue is that I don't know that we order as much healthy food <laughs> right online but yeah I'm sure there's plenty of research on that too makes sense well I want to thank you so much for sharing this paper with us and sharing the work that you've done uh, we really appreciate you at this okay. point I can pass it back to Paul uh, thank you Kristen uh, and thank you to Dr. England as well uh, Certainly, we appreciate uh, you sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, 
just a few final reminders before I close this out. Uh, again, please complete the survey that you'll receive when I uh, hit the end button. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Be on the lookout for an email with today's recording, handouts, and your CEU certificate. And with all that being said, that concludes today's session and the best of Janie B series. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Thank you.